Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Out front next, the Michigan Supreme Court handing Donald Trump a big win, keeping him on the ballot in that state. But that's not stopping challenges in other states. I'll speak with someone at the center of it all. Plus, Biden's border problem. The president's top diplomat just wrapping up his meeting with Mexico's president. So will it change anything at the border? And new before and after satellite images of a Russian warship Ukraine says it destroyed. It's an up-close look at what really happened. Let's go out front. Good evening. I'm Erica Hill. In for Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, Donald Trump racking up a win in Michigan, where the state Supreme Court rejected a bid to remove Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. Trump quick to hail that ruling in one of several rants on social media today. The fight, though, is really just beginning. Michigan is now the fourth state to reject efforts to keep Trump off the primary ballot, as similar efforts continue in a number of other states. A ruling in Maine is expected any day now. Trump is actually now demanding as well that Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, who would decide that ballot issue, recuse herself because of past comments she made about January 6th. So far, as you see on the map there, just one state, Colorado, has ruled to remove Trump's name from the ballot. And the ball is also back in Donald Trump's court now in his ongoing legal battles with special counsel Jack Smith. Smith's team arguing in a new filing that Trump should not be allowed to push political talking points during his election subversion trial, saying in part, quote, the court should not permit the defendant to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding an effort by prosecutors to try to stop Trump from saying things like this in court. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists and fascists indict me, I consider it actually a great badge of honor. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high level election interference. Virtually every poll, we're kicking Biden's ass. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't, we wouldn't be under investigation by deranged Jack Smith. Paula Reed is out front. And Paula, as I understand it, you actually have some breaking news in one of these cases. What's the latest? That's right, Erica. The Republican Party of Colorado has just appealed to the Supreme Court, asking it to overturn the state's unprecedented decision last week to remove former President Trump from the 2024 ballot. Now, Trump has also signaled that he intends to appeal that ruling, but he has not done so yet. But 
the GOP was a party to this case. They are working to try to keep Trump as an option to list in the 2024 primary ballot. Now, this is also significant because this appeal means that that Colorado decision from last week is now on hold until the Supreme Court reveals whether it is going to get involved in this issue. And Erica, as you know, there's a lot of pressure on the high court to weigh in here and offer some clarity about the 14th Amendment and also the power of states and state officials to remove candidates from the ballot. Really quickly, Paula, do you have any sense of how quickly the court could decide whether or not to take that? Well, they've also asked for expedited review, which I, I was joking uh, with one of the lawyers. It's very popular right now. Everyone wants to move and move quickly because, look, these has huge consequences, right? I mean, right now, this will likely be on pause for the primary. But we know from what we've seen in these decisions across the country that the door is still open to relitigate this issue, even in states that have kept Trump uh, as eligible for the ballot for the general election. So it's unclear how quickly the Supreme Court will move on this, but everyone involved in this knows, Erica, time is of the essence. It certainly is. Speaking of people who would like to see things expedited, <laughs> Jack Smith, um, his filing from his team now, um, this is more about what, what can and can't be said in court, ultimately. How likely is it that Jack Smith gets what he wants here? Look, what he ultimately wants is just to bring this case to trial before the 2024 election. But the whole thing right now is on pause. But he and his, his attorneys, clearly working through the holiday, continuing to file motions at request of the court so that once these appeals, these larger uh, constitutional questions have been appealed, they anticipate they will prevail and they hope that by filing these requests, they can move forward quickly once they get on the other side of these appeals. Now here, the specific issue is trying to limit potential defenses that Trump could, could use. Uh, specifically, though, they are focused on any suggestion that Trump has been the target of, quote, political persecution. They told the court they don't want Trump to be able to use this trial as a forum to share what they describe as disinformation. They do not want him to be able, they say, to distract the jury with these political arguments. They want the jury focused on facts. Paula Reed, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, out front now is Ron Fine. He's a lead attorney on the challenges to remove Donald Trump from the ballot in Michigan, Oregon, and Minnesota. Ron, good to have you with us tonight. So uh, let's go back to Michigan, if we could. Michigan, now the fourth state to reject a bid to remove Donald Trump from that primary ballot. I know you're not done, though, in that state. So what is next here for you? Well, the Michigan Supreme Court's decision actually left it open for us to refile after the primary. It was a very narrow ruling. The Michigan court did not say that Donald Trump didn't engage in insurrection. It did not say that Michigan can't decide whether he's disqualified under the 14th Amendment. All it said is that that challenge needs to come after the primary. And so we'll be ready to refile. Okay, so as you're ready to refile, the, the former president, as I'm sure you saw, was pretty quick to celebrate the decision on social media, praising it, uh, calling your efforts a, quote, pathetic gambit to rig the election, which has failed all across the country. You were also unsuccessful with a similar effort in Minnesota. Do you see at this point any states as likely wins for you right now? Well, we have a case pending in the Oregon Supreme Court right now. We're going to be filing uh, several more cases in other states. And the key point is that these decisions that have gone against us have not addressed anything about Donald Trump's engagement in insurrection. All they've said is that state law doesn't allow those challenges to be brought until after the primary. Now, we preferred to address these issues before the primary, but if these courts want to kick the can down the road, we'll be ready to relitigate these same issues after the primary. And in the meantime, the Colorado decision is apparently going up to the U.S. Supreme Court.
Um, and do you want to see the Supreme Court take this up? The U.S. Supreme Court is most likely going to take it, and uh, and we don't oppose that. And uh, we think it's important to get a, a prompt decision. It's it's best for the country. It's why we filed our challenges before the primary in order to allow the courts as much time as they needed to be able to decide this properly. Because it's obvious that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection on January 6th. We all saw it on national television, and that's exactly what the Constitution is designed to uh, exclude someone who did that from public office. We will just wait to see now uh, if the court, in fact, takes it up and then what that decision will be. Uh, lots happening in the coming months, uh, which, of course, I don't need to tell you, Ron. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, out front now, Karen Friedman Agniflo, former chief assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office. She also worked with Jack Smith and Anthony Michael Christ, law professor at Georgia State University. Good to have both of you with us tonight. So, Anthony, when we look at what happened in Michigan, the state Supreme Court there keeping Trump on the primary ballot for 2024. We just saw, right, this appeal from the GOP in Colorado. Paul is new reporting here, this breaking news. What do you think all of this means uh, for both Colorado and Michigan as this moves potentially to the Supreme Court? Well, it's really hard to, to make a lot out of the Michigan case, particularly because, as the previous guest noted, uh, this is really basically a question about the vehicle in which state law provides to challenge the, the eligibility of a candidate. And Michigan Supreme Court essentially ratified a ruling that said the secretary of state doesn't have the discretion to challenge the eligibility or, or to look into the eligibility of a candidate at this particular stage. So it's really not really a loss or win for anybody. Uh, it's just kind of a, a status quo, very similar to the Minnesota case. But in, in all, I think, um, you know, it, it's it's untenable to have a scenario where you have this patchwork of eligibility determinations. Um, and so ultimately, the Supreme Court will, I think, have to take this up. Mm -hmm. and, and I just want to point out again, the secretary of state in uh, Michigan, a Democrat, who said she agreed essentially with the findings, but really calling for some clarity and finality in her words from the Supreme Court is what she's hoping for. Karen, also in Michigan, the New York Times obtaining an interview that investigators did with a fake elector from 2020. His name is James Renner. CNN had previously reported that he was the first and the only fake elector to agree to cooperate. Um, he said in part in that interview uh, from the Times, I can't overemphasize how I once how once I read the information in the January 6th transcripts, how upset I was that the legitimate process had not been followed. I felt that I had been walked into a situation I shouldn't have ever been involved in. How significant is this type of testimony and this cooperation? This is an insider, right? This is somebody who's going to be able to provide information to prosecutors, whether it's in Michigan or to Jack Smith or uh, or any other case where where Donald Trump's intent and the fact that they intended to install these fake electors and the pressure campaign that he put on this is this could be a very significant witness to talk about how it wasn't just an alternative slate just in case that this was they were lied to and I think that could be very powerful to a jury. Um, speaking of Jack Smith, we do have this new filing from the special counsel's team where he does want to prohibit Donald Trump from pushing disinformation, from turning this trial political, from making political talking points in that election subversion trial. How delicate, Anthony, is this line between keeping Trump to the facts and allowing him to claim he's being science? I mean, where, where do you see that going? Well, the, the job of the trial court is to ensure that the jury is able to weigh facts and evidence, 
not conjecture, not speculation, um, you know, not political talking points. At the same time, the, the court has to give some latitude to the defense to make the case that they want to make before the jury. And so it's this very delicate balance of determining what has more probative value versus what is more prejudicial in nature. And so while uh, Donald Trump and his team, I think, will have considerable um, you know, ability to to create the narrative that they want to create in their own defense. Um, there there will be limitations, and there will be the you know. I think the court will put um, you know again limitations on the kind of political commentary that we've seen run rampant mm-hmm. uh, from the Trump campaign so far. Karen, it really it really seems that when you read this um, as the non lawyer over here, it's really just saying, hey, we want you to enforce the rules and the way things are normally done for a jury. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, well, so 100%. I mean, really, the only thing that can be admissible at a trial where there's a jury is relevant, admissible evidence. And so that's the main part that Jack Smith in this filing has asked the court to consider. But remember, the court cannot consider it right now because the case is on pause and is being stayed while it's being appealed. But Jack Smith is hoping that the DC circuit goes quickly and then the Supreme Court goes quickly. And so he's getting all his ducks in a row and putting everyone on notice about what his arguments are gonna be. And that's what the filing was, is he's basically saying, keep it relevant. Just if it's about the facts of the case or about any defenses that Trump has, that's what should come in. And everything else that's extraneous, whether he wants to talk about how it's political or it's a witch hunt and all of that, that's not really relevant to a jury. And so Jack Smith is really making sure that the judge is on notice of the types of of information, I wouldn't even call it evidence, but the type of information that he's seeking to keep out at a trial. Karen, Anthony, good to have both of you with us tonight. Thank you so much. Out front next, the top-level immigration meeting between two Biden cabinet members and the president of Mexico just wrapping up after more than three hours. So what happens now? Can Mexico help the U.S. stem the tide of migrants at the border? Plus disturbing new images out of Gaza and a major accusation against the IDF. We're going to go live to Israel for those details. And stunning new satellite images showing what appears to be a missile strike on a Russian warship. Ukraine is claiming credit. So what does Russia say? This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Tonight, a high-stakes meeting. Biden's top diplomat and his Homeland Security chief in Mexico appealing directly to Mexico's president in an effort to help reduce the surge of migrants at the U.S. southern border. The meeting itself, lasting more than three hours, wrapped up just moments ago. All of this is around 6,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border on Tuesday alone. And officials say they are now bracing for the coming days. Some warning that the border is at a, quote, breaking point. Rosa Flores is out front at the southern border. As border authorities near a breaking point from the weeks-long migrant surge. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas meet with Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador in Mexico City to discuss ways to drive down the unprecedented number of illegal migrant crossings. The seven-day average earlier this month, 9,600. Blinken and Mallorcas are expected to ask Mexico to move migrants south, control railways that are used by migrants to move north, and provide migrants incentives to stay in Mexico like visas. In Eagle Pass, Texas, although migrant apprehensions dropped from about 3,000 daily encounters last week to about 2,000 Monday, according to a law enforcement source, one of two international bridges are still closed to vehicle traffic to redirect personnel to process migrants. The wait time to cross by car Wednesday afternoon, an astounding 15 hours. Hours. Many Americans who frequently drive back and forth are opting to cross on foot. Like Minerva Castro. She says that when she ditched her car in Mexico, she saw a group of about 100 migrants walking towards Eagle Pass, some with children. One Eagle Pass business owner says the migrant surge is tearing the community apart. I can tell that tempers are flaring everywhere you go. That's why I'm hoping that there is a peaceful resolution to this crisis. Would you like to see President Biden visit Eagle Pass? I would, very much so. Texas State Representative Eddie Morales, a Democrat who represents residents from 11 West Texas counties along the state's border with Mexico, says the federal government's ongoing closure of the bridge and the recent five-day closure of the International Railway cost the U.S. economy hundreds of millions of dollars. Everyday Texans are the ones that end up suffering. Morales says he's hopeful that the top-level talks in Mexico City will pave the way for realistic change at the border, but says he would have liked to see Texas Governor Greg Abbott have a seat at the table. We're only going to get there if there's communication between these two countries and also with the state of Texas. Texas recently passed its own immigration bill and has come under fire for Abbott's border security tactics like busing and flying migrants to blue states, separating migrant families and deploying controversial border buoys and concertina wire. Morales initially supported Abbott's border security push, which has cost billions of dollars, but now says those efforts have fallen short. We have nothing positive to show to our taxpayers for the amount of money that we've invested. Now, if you take a look behind me, you'll see an open field with no migrants, and you might think there is no border crisis. Well, here's the thing. The U.S. federal government has gotten really good at something called decompression because they've had a lot of practice. That's when migrants are moved from an area where there's overcapacity to an area where there's processing space. Now, Erica, when it comes to the talks in Mexico City, one of the things that I'll be looking for as a possible clue for the outcome of those talks is the posture of law enforcement on the Mexican side of the border. Erica, important to have that to watch for. Rosa, appreciate the reporting as always. Thank you. Out front now, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas, whose district includes a portion of the U.S.-Mexico border. Good to have you with us tonight, Congressman. We just heard what Rosa said she is going to be looking for. Do you think this meeting tonight between Mexico's president and Secretaries Blinken and Mayorkas will in fact impact the migrant surge at the southern border? 
You know, I've uh, a text uh, both the Mexicans and the Americans are at the meeting, uh, and I got some responses from them. Uh, I'm hoping that what they finalize will be something that we can use and we can use uh, right away. I'll tell you this, when the Mexicans stop, people up there, Southern border, Guatemala's, the numbers slow down. It's, it's just a straightforward thing. Mm -hmm. They got to do their job on the Mexican side. The only problem is, is that the Mexicans don't want to be seen doing Americans dirty job that is stopping migrants over there. They got their own internal politics like we have our own politics also in the U.S. So as we wait and as we watch, um, I'm sure you are hearing so much of this. And, you know, we have spoken a number of times over the years. Last night I spoke with the mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, who says, frankly, they just feel forgotten by the federal government. Take a listen. Our city here in Eagle Pass, we've been getting slammed with two to three thousand people a day. And it's just a, an unfair, unethical situation. What's going on here in Eagle Pass? We feel ignored by the federal government. As I understand it, it's been nearly a year since January, since you had a real substantive conversation with the president about immigration. Do you also feel ignored by the administration? Well, I think for many years, I, I don't think they've listened to people that live here at the border and understand the border. I think the mayor from Eagle Pass is right. I mean, you know, what they're doing is just processing people. They get people from Eagle Pass or Rio, send them over to San Antonio, flying from San Antonio into the interior of the U.S., we're good at processing people, but we got to go back to what worked. If you look at the numbers straightforward for the last 25 years, for the last 25 years, when somebody goes in front of an immigration judge, 13 percent will be accepted and the rest will be rejected. So why are we processing hundreds of thousands of people where at the end of the day, which I'm talking about four or five years from now, mm -hmm. they're not going to be accepted. So I agree. You know, the border has been ignore they're listening too much to the immigration activists the white house and a lot of members of congress and the senate listen to the immigration advocates but who's listening to the border communities well they also may be losing members of their own party if we look at this recent monmouth poll nearly half of democrats say they disapprove of biden's handling of immigration that's actually up 17 points over the past year why do you think he is losing so much support from democrats you know, uh, it's the PIA policy doing the right thing. And then you got the PIA politics on the politics part. And I'll focus on your question. We're we're losing Democrats, people that are frustrated, frustrated because they're not seeing what should be done at the border. Look, we want to see law and order at the border and still treat the migrants with respect and dignity. But they got to follow the rule right now. They feel that all they have to do is get to the border. And then they will be processed and sent to the interior and then wait four, five, six years to have a hearing where 87 percent will be rejected. And, and that's what we're losing Democrats. They feel that the Democratic Party, that the president is not doing enough. And we're going to lose a lot of Democrats. And it's because we're not doing the right thing at the border. Based on what you would like to see done, I'm guessing that would be your message to the president. If you had another substantive conversation, again, it's been nearly a year. Do you think the president, this administration, has the appetite for that, especially in an election year? Well, you know, it's uh, it depends who he wants to lose. Does he want to lose uh, folks here at the border? Or does he is he worried about other uh, folks? But look, keep in mind, Democrats are divided in New York. Democrats are divided in Chicago. There are people that feel that there's just too many people coming in. Yes, we can bring in water buckets to help the border, 
but it's not bringing water buckets. What we got to do is turn off the faucet. And the only way you can do this with all due respect is you got to detain people, give them their quick hearing. And if they have to be deported with all due respect, get them deported because at the end of the day, 87% will be rejected. So why are we delaying this for four or five years where a lot of them I'm not going to show up? Congressman Henry Cuellar, good to have you with us tonight. And I'll be interested to see uh, if those text messages from the folks you say were in the meeting, what comes to pass out of that. Feel free to keep us posted. Thank you. Thank you so much. Out front now, Democratic strategist Basil Smeichel and former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, who's now the director of Mission Democracy. Basil, I want to start with you because I was I was watching you out of the corner of my eye as I was talking to Congressman Cuellar. And you're shaking your head in agreement with a lot of what he says, specifically when it comes to losing Democratic support, losing the support for President Biden of his own party. Right. I mean, you can hear the frustration in his voice. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, even today, the mayors of New York City, of Denver, and of Chicago mm -hmm. met because they're trying to figure out what to do with the migrants that are already in this country, that they're having difficulty trying mm -hmm. to manage, trying to move through the process, um, trying to find actually adequate shelter as we're getting deeper into the winter. So this is a concern that is drawing on the budgets of these major cities. There are people, to going to the Congress member's point, there are people who are more recent migrants that are upset that so much attention is being paid to the new migrants and not to the ones who've already been here that are still struggling. You have a lot of voters who are saying, you've got all this money for migrants, what about us? We've been here, uh, we're looking for support as well. So it is very uh, contentious within the Democratic Party and that's something that uh, the mayors of these cities and governors of those states are trying to wrestle with. But yeah. all the while that they're doing that, they're going to the federal government and saying, please help us. And I think that's what's dragging down the administration on this issue. Right. It's that they're not they're not responding to those, friendly to, fire, those friendly cries, fire, right? to those cries for help. And, you know, when we look at this, Joe, when you look at this from a from a political perspective, look, this is a can that gets kicked down the road all the time because it is not an easy fix. There's no one solution to fixing this very broad immigration problem. That said, going into an election year, is there any incentive here, given what Biden and Democrats are facing, for Republicans to work with them to try to come up with a solution, at least one small solution that they can get behind? Oh, uh, God, no, Erica. Look, uh, Republicans have zero incentive to help. Look, I say this as a former Republican who never, ever, ever wants to see Donald Trump back into the White House. This issue, the border, and it is a crisis, and it's been a crisis for two to three years. Erica, this issue could cost Joe Biden the election in 2024. Democrats have ignored this issue. Joe Biden, when he first got elected, he said, I'm going to be the anti-Donald Trump. And he welcomed all these people up and they came up. And now our border is being flooded and it's being flooded on a daily basis. And uh, Basil's right. Look, Democratic mayors in the interior of this country uh, are crying for help now. For the life of me, I don't know why Joe Biden has not done more on this because this issue could cost him his presidency. Well, just to put it in perspective, too, in terms of voters, a recent Fox News poll finds that immigration for voters is the second most important issue facing the U.S. right now behind the economy. To Joe's point, Basil, and actually from what we heard from the, from the congressman who said he believes that President Biden is listening too much to immigration mm. activists, not paying attention to the problem. So... If Democrats want to try to fix their message at this point, knowing how important immigration is to voters, 
How do they do that? What yeah, is the message? You know, I tell you, it's a little bit of a nuanced problem here because I think immigration in some ways is a proxy for a larger economic concern. I think what Donald Trump was masterfully doing, this no, you're right, no, this issue has no. never really been solvable in the in recent history. But what Donald Trump is really good at doing is conflating economic nationalism and ethnic nationalism. So the concern about immigrants is also a concern about the economy. Are they taking our jobs? Do we have enough resources to go around? And and what I think the the, the administration needs to do is hit the economic message, not so much the immigration message, because there's no easy solve no. for that. Joe, you may hear Joe. Joe is, Joe is, Joe is definitely just. <laughs> Agreeing with you on no, that. No, but I'd say there's no, <laughs> no I'd just say very no, quickly, no, there's no easy no, solve. No. Right. There's no easy solve. And if you're going to hit this, hit the, oh. immigra- hit the economic issue to just be able to say to voters that you can plan for the future that your economic aspirations can be solved. No, look, look, uh, Eric, I love my friend Basil and Basil, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. But no, 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 this is not a freaking nuanced issue. This is simple. And it's an amazing opportunity for Biden. Secure the damn border, period. If Joe Biden over the next eight to 10 months took this issue seriously and became a border hawk in a way, it's not nuanced. Secure the border. If he leads this charge, he'll get reelected. Yeah, I, but, and, but the issue is, again, how many years have we been talking about how simple this problem is? It could be easily fixed if there was a if there was a better immigration hawk in office. It's just it just doesn't it just doesn't solve itself that way. We have to deal with the folks that are here. Well, reform Correct. Is we have to deal with the folks that are here now. And I will I will say this, and I will concede this that when we talk about the individuals, the migrants that are here now, you, what you're hearing from a lot of Republicans is a little fear because there's, there's the sort of concern that a lot of what's happening in the urban centers is going to go now into the suburban and even the rural communities. And that's the one thing that a lot of those suburban voters and rural voters, those independent voters that Democrats really need, that's the big concern. It's not the Democrats themselves, but it's a lot of those suburban voters and it's a lot of those independent voters that Democrats are afraid of losing because this issue is not something that can be so easily contained. It is also not something Sorry, Joe, go ahead, last word. No, I was just going to say, Erica, the board, Basil's right. Immigration reform is difficult, but securing the border, leading on that is not difficult. And look, we've got Donald Trump out there saying, I will be a dictator to secure the border. And let me tell you something, that plays with much more than just his crazy base. Biden's got to be uh, lean into this issue big time. Great to have both of you with us tonight. Thank you. Uh, It will not be the last time we discuss it. Out front next, Israel warns there are many more months of war ahead. So will there ever be an end in sight? And new before and after satellite images of a Russian warship damaged by a missile. We're going to dissect those images to show you what really happened. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Tonight, many more months. That's how long Israel's military chief warns the war in Gaza could last. And it comes as new video is circulating online tonight, purportedly showing at least two Palestinian children stripped and held at gunpoint by the IDF in Gaza. CNN is unable to verify when that video was taken. I wanted to bring in Will Ripley, though, who joins us from Tel Aviv tonight. Will, what more do you know about this video? So this uh, video, Erica, was posted by an Israeli journalist on Christmas Eve. But as you said, even though we geolocated it, so we know that it was in northern Gaza at a stadium, we don't know exactly when it was taken. We can't independently verify that. But what you can see clearly in the video, and we blurred the faces for you, uh, there are two children among this group of Palestinian men who have been, uh, you, know, hand, you know, their hands tied, standing in this stadium, stripped down to their underwear, uh, Israel has not responded to our request for specific comment about this video, but in the past they have said the reason that they strip detainees is because they need to check whether they are wearing explosive belts. And in fact, just within the last week, Israel uh, was going house to house in Gaza and they claimed that they found explosive belts that had been modified for children to wear. Now, we don't know if that's any connection to the two children that we see detained in this video, uh, but certainly it is a very dire situation for children mm -hmm. across Gaza right now. Uh, you know, those who are, uh, you know, out of school now for 10 weeks, uh, some of them actually are taking classes, just impromptu classes in these schools that are packed with families that are sheltering. But one of the schools was hit by artillery fire uh, just within the last uh, couple of days. And we also know that there was an attack, uh, uh, an Israeli attack that an airstrike near a hospital uh, that left at least 20 people dead. And the video, uh, it's just absolutely horrific. You have uh, right outside this hospital, uh, the sidewalk covered in blood, mangled bodies of men, women and children. And inside the hospital, just a scene of absolute pandemonium. There was a team of international surgeons that was able to get access into Gaza and they visited the handful of hospitals that are still functioning right now. And they described a situation where doctors are getting flooded with patients. More than 55,000 people reported injured in this conflict, which is now at its 80th day, 55,000. And they barely have enough medical supplies to offer the most minimal care, never mind some of the traumatic, uh, you know, really critical injuries that they're that they're seeing in the hospitals. And that's the reason why the World Health Organization has warned a lot of patients are dying just waiting to see a doctor. And then, of course, the death toll has now surpassed 21,000 people, according to the Hamas controlled health ministry. That is a number that we can't independently verify, Erica. But certainly the pictures paint a very grim picture of this war that Israel says will last for many months to come. We'll appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Uh, with us now is Seth Jones, who's senior vice president of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The U.S. government relies heavily on assessments. Uh, Seth, from you and your colleagues, and you just returned from Israel. I know you spent considerable time there with U.S. and Israeli officials. The videos, as Will just was talking about, the videos that we're seeing out of Gaza, the utter destruction that people around the world are seeing, is that impacting the decision-making at all? Well, I think it's impacting the decision in one important sense, and that is uh, that the U.S. government, uh, led by President Biden, have been putting additional pressure on the Israelis to move from this phase of the operation, which, uh, which I saw on the ground about a week and a half ago in Gaza, which is mostly ground forces, mm -hmm. um, to a, a new phase which relies on a much more limited ground presence and strikes uh, from the air, from drones, and from some artillery, which, which, which limits or hopefully limits civilian casualties. But I don't think the Israeli population uh, is pushing the Netanyahu government to uh, decrease 
the types of attacks it's uh, it's conducted so far, at least not my not my interviews with Israeli citizens. Okay, so so that's the public perception. Rather, I shouldn't say that public support um, in Israel. Talking about those conversations, right, we know that one of Netanyahu's top advisors, Ron Dermer, met for a number of hours with officials uh, from the Biden administration in Washington yesterday about Israel's plans for scaling down the war. Is that the sort of plan that you believe they were likely talking about? Yeah, so I've seen the Israeli government's phases of the operation, the uh, IDF's phases. Mm -hmm. Uh, They showed it to me uh, at, at IDF headquarters I think what is important in what they're laying out, even to the U.S. government, is they're not arguing this war is going to end anytime soon. What they're looking at is a long war, one that is, if not months, uh, potentially even years, um, much more like Operation Defensive Shield. Um, I think the reality for the Israelis is they have, according to Israeli estimates that that, that I've seen, only uh, killed eight to 10,000 Hamas operatives out of a total um, Hamas population of operatives of somewhere between 24 and 40,000. That is a quarter to a fifth. I mean, they're not even close to accomplishing some of their strategic objectives. They have not captured or killed uh, Hamas leaders, including the leader Sinwar in Gaza or the head of the uh, military wing. So they have a long way to go in their perspective. And there's that concern, too, about the the other battle that is being waged against this ideology, not just about people. What about these concerns that have become more and more a part of the conversation, I think, in the U.S. when it comes to the widening war in the region? How real do you believe that threat is at this point? I think it's a it's a it's a serious concern. I mean, I I talked to U.S. officials in Israel as well. um, And just the number of attacks, uh, what the Pentagon gave to me yesterday was over 100 attacks against U.S. uh, infrastructure and targets in Iraq and Syria, over 100 uh, uh, targets against commercial vessels in the Red Sea coming out of the Houthis in Yemen, and well over a thousand strikes on both sides of the Israel-Lebanon border right now. So I think this is a role the U.S. has to play in deterring an escalation of this conflict by Iranian-backed groups in the region because, boy, that would that would really uh, 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 increase the level of casualties to much more significant levels if this were to get out of control. Seth, really appreciate your insight and your expertise. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Out front next, new satellite images reveal extensive damage to a Russian warship, which Ukraine says it's responsible for. So just how big of a hit is this for the Russian Navy? Plus an update on a story we brought you last night, the latest on this Apple watch ban, a federal appeals court now weighing in. Tonight, stunning new before and after images from an airstrike that Ukraine claims destroyed a Russian warship. Ukraine says the ship was carrying Iranian-made attack drones. Russia says only one person uh, reportedly killed here. It's important to note this is a ship that carries a crew of nearly 90 people. Russia, perhaps not surprisingly, trying to downplay the incident. But when you look at these images, you can see that ship just reduces smoke and ash. Already 20 percent of Russia's Black Sea fleet has been destroyed in the span of four months. So where does the fight stand? Fred Pleitkin is out front. Russia's most recent claimed battlefield victory, driving Ukrainian forces to the outskirts of Marinka on the Eastern Front. The prize though, dust and rubble, as the vicious fighting has turned the town into a wasteland. Still, Russia's defense minister claiming this is significant progress for Moscow. 
The Russian army is constantly taking more favorable positions and expanding controlled territories in all directions, he said. We are consistently moving forward, achieving the stated goals of the special operation. Russia says its forces are now pressing in the entire east, looking to encircle the Ukrainians in Avdivka, increasingly laying waste to that city as well, Ukrainian authorities still operating their show. We've been bringing humanitarian aid and food here for a long time, he says. People have already left. I hope there were no casualties. This is what Avdivka looks like. There's nothing here. Kiev says the Russian army is suffering catastrophic losses during their assaults, but Ukraine's military also acknowledges their own large-scale counteroffensive started this summer has essentially stalled. A situation compounded by severe ammo shortages. Ukraine desperately hoping Congress will end its impasse and greenlight further U.S. military aid after months of delays. Ukraine's top general in a rare press conference says he's confident the assistance will come and that on the whole, foreign military help for Ukraine has made a huge difference. We had rather ambitious goals in 2023, he says. I was not disappointed by the level of assistance in 2023. Of course, it was not everything, but allowed us to conduct confident military operations. While gains on the ground remain incremental for both sides, the air war continues. Russian missiles and drones striking in Kherson and in Odessa, killing two people. And Moscow now admits Kiev's air force managed to strike a large Russian landing ship, but only vaguely says the vessel suffered damage. Ukraine, though, claims the ship and its cargo were completely destroyed. Footage on air now is impressive indeed, the Air Force spokesman says. A warship was destroyed, most likely a warship with a set of ammunition, powerful ammo. A key strike for Ukraine, but on the front lines, the war grinds on in the harsh Eastern European winter. Little territory changing hands, but many soldiers on both sides killed and wounded. And Erica, the Ukrainians do acknowledge that the Russians really are pressing along the Eastern Front, but they also say that the Russians are suffering immense casualties, saying the Russians lost about 3,000 soldiers in just a week's time, with 1,000 of those killed. The Russians themselves, of course, not giving any exact numbers. Erica? Fred, with the reporting tonight, appreciate it. Also with a CNN military analyst, Colonel Cedric Layton, who is at the Magic Wall. So, Colonel, when we look at this, going back to this ship, Russia confirmed the ship had been damaged, but really stopped short of admitting it had been hit beyond repair. When you look at those images, what do they tell you? Well, let's take a look at those images, Erica, because this is actually quite instructive. Uh, what you're seeing here, this is the before picture of the Novo Cherkask. This is the transport ship that's in question right here. And here it is in the before picture in its port uh, in Crimea. But let's take a look at what it looks like after the strike. This is completely destroyed. Uh, so the Ukrainian battle assessment uh, of this is accurate, appears to be accurate. Uh, and what you're seeing here is a ship that is going to be really, really hard to repair if, in fact, it can be repaired. When we see those images and then you have Russian officials saying one person was killed, two were injured in these strikes, it's pretty remarkable. According to the U.S. military, that ship carries, I think it's a crew of around 90 people, it's about 87, can hold upwards of... 237 troops. Do you believe that that death hole could actually be higher? 
I do. Let's take a look at uh, the statistics for the Novocherkask. Like you mentioned, 87 crew is the complement that it's slated for. 237 troops can be carried on this transport, can hold 10 main battle tanks. And uh, in this particular case, it's reputed to have been carrying Shahid drones, the Iranian-made drones that have become kind of infamous around here. It stands to reason that this is one of the key things that uh, I think we should really uh, focus on here. With an explosion of this type, Eric, uh, it really, uh, I think, is impossible that only one person was killed in this situation. Uh, not only was there a strike on the ship, but any type of damage that occurred peripheral to the ship would have impacted people in the immediate vicinity. So I think the death toll is much higher than one, and I think the total of injured is also pretty high in this case. When we look at where things stand, on the ground, right? And we saw some of this in Fred's piece, hearing from Ukrainian officials. The war seems to be at somewhat of a stalemate for the last several months. When you look at what is happening on the battlefield, what do you see at this point? Well, Erica, I think one of the key things to look at is what is happening in the town of Avdivka, which is right here, and uh, Fred mentioned that in his piece. Notice that the Russian forces are basically surrounding Avdivka on three sides. Uh, what they're trying to do is very similar to what they did in Bakhmut, uh, which is right here. Uh, that town was surrounded by the Russians as well, and it took a while for the Russians to take Bakhmut, many months actually, about nine months. Uh, Avdivka is kind of facing the same fate here. Uh, the Russians have never been able to capture this town, and now that uh, they are moving their forces into this particular area, it's always been kind of on the borderline between the Russian forces and the Ukrainian forces. Uh, the next move for the Russians will probably be to cut things off and in essence encircle this town. Mm -hmm. They're also having issues in Marinka, the town that's uh, to the southwest here. Uh, this area right here on the confluence of the eastern and the southern fronts is going to be critical, kind of a pivot point for the Russians and what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to consolidate their gains in the Donetsk region and also in the Luhansk region. That's important for Vladimir Putin because he says that these territories are now independent of Ukraine and in fact are affiliated with Russia. Of course the Ukrainians beg to differ with that but that is the Russian goal. They're trying to take over all of this and consolidate their gains in these areas. So as we keep an eye on that in the coming weeks and months we're also approaching the two-year mark at this point. Um, where do you see this war headed? Is it going to be more focused simply in those areas at this point? So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see some spectacular actions like we saw in uh, Crimea with the Novocherkassk, the mm -hmm. ship that blew up. Uh, but you're also going to see movements here on the ground, and this, these movements are going to be fairly static. So during this winter time period, unless something breaks within the front lines here, we're going to see a very static picture with maybe a few incremental gains here and a few incre incremental gains by the Russians here, but the Ukrainians are going to be able to hold this at least for the time being. Colonel Layton, always appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you. You bet, Erica. Out front next, an update on the Apple Watch story we told you about last night. So it turns out they will stay on shelves for now. Another court weighing in tonight. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.